Okay, so Revelation uh, part one. Here's what we're going to do today, because obviously, you know, we're not going to get through the whole text of Revelation. There's a lot. But I want to lay some groundwork so that when we get into it a little bit more next week, we can kind of run up into the text. Um, my plan today is to kind of walk through chapter one. Again, to just set the stage a little bit spiritually um, for what this Bible book is and what it's about and what it, can, um, what it wants to do for us and in us. Because I think we tend to get to Revelation at the end of Scripture and then like throw out everything we know about Scripture and just go, but Revelation. It's like, no, treat it like Scripture. Treat it like all the things we've learned about the New Testament. Treat it in the same historical context, the same historical principles, the same interpretive principles. Treat it like a Bible book. And I think that's where it becomes alive. So I want to lay that framework today, and then next week we'll get further into the actual text of the book. Does that make sense? So author of Revelation is who? John. John. Same John, uh, as far as we know. Um, The Apostle John. So again, download uh, all of that stuff that you know about who that was and what he brings to the table there. Okay, Uh, so John wrote Revelation. Uh, The date of Revelation, we think, is 95 AD. That's, I think, the best kind of guess for it, the best place to put it. So 95 AD, one, this and Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John are all in the same ballpark, probably the last books of the New Testament to be written. Um, so 95 AD. So the Roman emperor at this time is a guy named Domitian. Domitian, D-O-M-I-T-I-A-N, Domitian. Uh, he was the brother of Titus, who was a Roman emperor before him. Titus was the general who like conquered Judea, suppressed the revolution in 70 AD. So when we talk about 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem and all that mess, it was Titus who was the general. At the time, their dad was emperor, and Titus was the general who finished that, squashed the rebellion. And then because he did so great, they built him an arch, which was basically a way of like, you know, putting up an arch around the road to walk through because it's like what other way would be great for us to honor and pass under all the time and remember who Titus was and what he did. So they built the Arch of Titus in Rome. It's still there today. If you've seen a picture of Rome and like a big arch, it was probably the Arch of Titus. It's like the, the big one. And on it, like carved into it, are scenes of him um, ransacking Jerusalem, basically. Um, so this, that was the guy. Domitian's older brother was Titus, who was the general who did that. He became emperor, died, then Domitian became emperor. Um, I think somewhere in the 80s, if I remember right, maybe 81 or so, um, is when Domitian became emperor. Yeah, Aiden. Just making sure. Mm-hmm. So Titus was the general and he destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem in oh. 70 AD. Yep. And then a little bit after that, he became emperor when his dad died. Yeah, good question. Does that make sense, the historical pieces there? I think it's so interesting to think of who these people were um, and what they were kind of, uh, what they cared about. So a couple of other things about Domitian. He was, um, I think, a pretty successful, effective kind of leader. Um, the Roman Senate didn't like him because he kind of centralized a lot of power for himself. So, um, and the Senate didn't like that because they liked having a balance of power and or their own power. Um, so they were kind of at odds a little bit. Um, he was economically successful and helpful for Rome. Um, so from a Roman citizen's perspective, pretty good ruler for the most part. Um, he declared himself to be, I don't know if I can remember the official like title, I think it was like perpetual censor or something was one of the things he took on, which meant he was in charge of the census and in charge of um, basically like dictating and holding people accountable for their everyday morality 
and behavior and all that kind of stuff. So he, it wasn't just like, I'm the governmental leader, but I'm also kind of in charge of your personal life and aware of how it's going. He took that official role on. What he did day to day, you know, I don't know, but officially he wanted to have a say in that. Um, and part of that in Roman world was the imperial cult, it's called, which basically means the worship of the emperor. I mean, the worship of the emperor governmental system and the emperor being a god. So all of that is kind of tied into who this guy was. Effective leader economically, effective leader governmentally, um, was the brother, family member of one of the most effective generals. So it like comes from that type of family from a long dynasty. He was actually the last of a dynasty of Caesars, uh, emperors, because he and his wife had a son who died when he was really, really young, like two or three, I think. Um, years old, so died really, he was really young. Don't even know his name, um, but he became a pretty big part of Domitian and his wife's life. Um, like he was on their coins, and um, his Domitian declared his wife to basically be a goddess, and then their son kind of became a representative of the gods. He was depicted sometimes like, um, you know, the Roman god Jupiter, who is like the equivalent of the Greek god. Anybody know? Zeus. Zeus, so like kind of in charge, okay? Um, so sometimes Domitian's son was depicted like Jupiter as a baby. So basically saying like, my son is now kind of like or at least related to the king of all the gods as a kid. Um, so it became, I mean, a heartbreaking loss for them that they turn into all of the like Roman thrust behind worship of people and claiming power using coins to kind of spread their message because their son was on coins um looking like jupiter and kind of holding rome in his hands that kind of stuff um so that was the like the personal life of domitian the dynasty ends with him the new emperors take over after that um there was a pretty significant period of persecution under domitian like it was pretty intense probably not its most intense but one of the like peaks in christian persecution was under domitian I'm at least to some degree. Um, so that's kind of what's going on around the world, the, uh, around Rome at this time, um, which is the world, basically, at that time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's the situation, um, like a bunch of different things going on. For one, just download all the stuff we talked about for all the New Testament stuff, false teaching going around, people trying to persevere. Everything is hard, economically marginalized. All the stuff that Christians are facing, they're facing a lot, Um here it's not it's not really different but let me just put some different words to it because i think it's helpful when we read revelation so first facing persecution the church needs perseverance facing persecution the church needs perseverance facing compromise the church needs conviction facing compromise the church needs conviction Facing hopelessness, the church needs heaven. Facing hopelessness, the church needs heaven. And then facing marginalization, so being marginalized, you know, facing marginalization, the church needs, any guesses? Starts with an M. Mary. Mission. Facing marginalization, the church needs mission is what I would say so all those things again not totally different from what we've seen already in the New Testament similar type of world but I think putting these things um, for one I 
I think those phrases are helpful for another bringing all these things to bear in revelation is hugely helpful so that we don't just say like revelation it's about the end of the world like well who says let's let revelation tell us what it's about and if revelation comes in the time of Domitian in the 90s AD written by John addressed to specific churches we can figure out what those specific churches were facing that's what revelation's about right does that make sense because we're going to treat it like we treat all the bible books so let's let us tell us what it's about let it tell us what it's about instead of us deciding what it's about and trying to find that there i think we'll be a lot more successful so this is what's going on that revelation's addressing persecution compromise hopelessness marginalization they need perseverance conviction heaven and mission so genre of revelation um what does genre mean you guys know right yeah writing style category like what kind of writing is this um, like if you go to a bookstore or something and they've got the, like here's the travel books and here's the fiction books and here's that, like those are different genre. And when you, if I'm reading a mystery novel, I'm going to read it different than I read an autobiography or a travel book because I know what kind of genre I'm in. So let's know what genre we're in. We do this with all the, all the Bible books. So let's do it with Revelation. Revelation kind of is a Venn diagram of a few different genre that overlap and it's kind of all of them fitting together so the first one is an epistle which is the the fancy bible term for what letter Letter. so like a lot of the new testament so uh, revelation is an epistle so somebody look at revelation 1 4 to 5 and read that for us revelation 1 4 through 5 just read it when you got it Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're good. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Yeah. And I, it ends at five, but we can keep going. Yeah. So um, that sounds just like the beginning of most of Paul's letters, basically, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, John, this is who I am. Here's who I'm writing to. Grace and peace be yours in abundance from Jesus. Like, it's a, he's writing a letter to real people, to seven churches who were there in a real place in Asia. So that's your blank. John is writing to real people. John's writing to real people. Um, so hold on to that when we're going through Revelation, that I don't want to make Revelation mean something to us that it didn't mean to them. Mm-hmm. I want to let it be true for the people in the seven churches in Asia Minor. I want to let it be God's message to them. I want it to be birthed out of their real circumstance so that then when we get it, we're interpreting what they would have read because God gave a message to them that he then preserved for us, just like we do with all the rest of Scripture. So John's writing to real people. That's the first one. The second genre that Revelation fits is prophecy. Um, so somebody read verse 3 for us. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. and He blesses all who listen to its message, message and obey what it says for the time is near. Okay. Um, so prophecy. He claims that this is a prophecy. Blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Um, but notice what he says. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Um, that phrase, take to heart, um, in Greek could be translated as like um, like accept it or obey it it's that kind of it's not just like oh I'm going to treasure this but it's like it affected me like I did something because of what I took in does that make sense it's like an obedience word it's sometimes translated obedience so blessed is the one who reads it hears it like really listens understands and obeys it like takes it to heart acts on it so um just key, I think that's a key word. I spent a little bit of time talking about that word because I think we can tend to see prophecy and be like, oh, that's predicting something. Well, if it's just predicting what might happen someday or what God said will happen someday later, 
how do I like obey that? How do I act on that? I just think about it or worry about it or try to figure it out or try to solve it. But he tells us like, hear it, understand it, do something with it. So he's not just giving us something to think about or look for. He's giving us something to act on um, because that's what biblical prophecy is. We've talked about this some, especially like in First Corinthians and things like that. Like what is the gift of prophecy? It's rarely, or at least um, statistically way less about predicting specific future events as it is about saying, this is God's will for you. What are you going to do about that? Like the Old Testament prophets do have some predictive stuff in them. You know, things like Galilee by the way of the sea along the Jordan, you know, from you is going to come the Messiah. He'll be called Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. Predictive, right? There's something there that's predictive. A lot of the prophets are like, you are unjust, disobedient people, and God's mad about it. If you don't repent, he's going to wipe you out. That's most, if you read the prophets, that's most of what it is. It's a lot more like God has a message for you, calls them to obedience, calls them to conviction. So that's what prophecy is. We hear the word prophecy and go, woo, but prophecy is a call to conviction, a message from God to real people. Does that make sense? So here's the first one. John is writing with divine authority. If he's claiming to be, this is a prophecy, I mean, it's scripture, so we're going to put divine authority in it anyway, but what does a prophetic message mean? It means it comes from God um, to people. Um, so John is writing with divine authority. Like, Jesus gave me this message. I'm giving it to you. So it's not just my words. It's his. you got to deal with what he has to say. And then secondly, John is writing like OT prophets. John's writing like OT prophets. So one of the best ways we can understand what Revelation is trying to say, what Revelation is, uh, means is to understand what Old Testament prophets were doing and saying and intending because John's doing very similar thing. Like for, for John, if, if he has this vision with Jesus and it's like, I'm going to give you this prophecy message to give to the churches, John would have been like, oh, you mean like my heroes, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. Like he would have known those books. He would have like, not just like known of them, he probably would have had them at least close to memorized, if not all the way. Like, he would have known them deep in his soul. So if Jesus says to him, I have a prophecy for you to give to the church, he's like, really? I, 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 I just wonder if he's, like, honored to be able to do that. And he's stepping into the tradition of the people that have impacted him maybe most, especially since coming to know Jesus. Imagine somebody raised a Jewish boy, knowing those scriptures, longing for Messiah, comes to know Jesus and believe that he's the fulfillment of all those things. Don't you think he then spends the next 60 years before writing this, pouring back over those scriptures and finding connections and seeing points of overlap and making the picture clearer than it ever would have been before because now he has Jesus and Isaiah 53. Whoa! You know, like he would have been mind blown, I think, to read that stuff. So then to give us a book of prophecy. I think John is, is going to, of course by inspiration, but also because he's a John, you know, who grew up a Jewish boy, is going to bring the Old Testament text to bear on this. He's going to bring passages he had memorized into this. So Revelation's full of Old Testament references, sometimes quotes, sometimes just like if you knew it really well, you'd see it. And there's some that you'll see and recognize. There's some you won't. There's, there's a lot I don't, but there's tons of Old Testament in Revelation. So the more you know those books the more it comes alive and you realize John isn't just saying weird stuff. John's repeating scripture that he knew and he's interpreting it now in the light of Jesus, giving hope to people who need it. Does that make sense? 
So that's what he's doing. That's what prophecy means in this sense, at least primarily, if not exclusively. Third is apocalypse. Um, so Revelation is an apocalypse. So apocalypse is a genre. Usually when I say the word apocalypse, what do you think of? Huh? Zombies. Zombies, yeah. <laughs> Stuff like that. Like end of the world, crazy, it's all bad. You know, it's like I picture like falling down buildings and the sun is somehow red now. And it's like barely comes above the horizon and it's like bad and the world has ended in nuclear war. It's like that's the apocalypse. The word of, and, and that comes from this and then assuming that this is describing the end of the world. And if you read a lot of these things as like this will be the literal event and the way it happens, you're going to end up creating that type of world. But if you let this be an apocalypse based on what the word means and let it provide, you know, perseverance, conviction, hope of heaven and a call to mission, you're going to get a different picture. So the word apocalypse is a Greek word, uh, comes from the word apokalupto, um, which just means to reveal something, which is why this book's called Revelation. So in Greek, this book is called Apokalupto Ioannou, or Apokalupto Ioannes, the Apocalypse of John. That's the name of the book. So we translate that to Revelation because an apocalypse reveals. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's just what it means. So like in some Greek literature, the word apocalypto would be used of like a bride's veil being lifted. So it's like I'm going to lift the veil and reveal what was underneath. It was there the whole time. You even probably kind of knew what it was. But let me pull back the veil so you can really see it. You can see clearly what's there. So that's what apocalypse is and it's not just it wasn't just made up for this book apocalyptic literature was a genre you would have found in the bookstore um, and a lot of Old Testament some Old Testament at least is apocalyptic Daniel has a lot of that um, some of the apocrypha we talked some of apocrypha has apocalyptic um, nature to it genre to it if you read it it would feel like revelation We're like this is a weird image that I don't understand um, but apocalyptic is meant to reveal a deeper meaning behind an expression. So a really, really helpful um, comparison, I think, is that apocalyptic literature is a lot like a political cartoon. Um, so like if I showed you a cartoon of, we'll just try to think of something you that would make pretty quick sense. If I showed you a cartoon of like an elephant just looking like oblivious, marching through the streets of Washington, D.C., knocking buildings over. Like, just a big, like, oblivious elephant knocking stuff over. What do you think that would mean? Especially maybe if it was, like, four years ago. Uh, you know, I would kind of view it as, like, um, I mean, that's the elephant is the sign of the Democrat? Or the Opposite. Party? And so, like, just making, and just trashing town, basically. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, like, you think four years ago... If it's just like this big, bumbling kind of elephant, especially if it was kind of caricatured with a weird comb over, yeah. walking through Washington, D.C., knocking buildings over, it'd be, yeah, Donald Trump is loose in the streets of D.C., having his own little party and making a mess. You could just as easily say, what if you showed a picture of a donkey that looked really old and worn out, sitting at a desk asleep? Joe Biden. Do you, know, you know what I mean? Like, so we see those cartoons, and it's like, I get it. I get the image. We know the elephant and donkey wouldn't make sense to, like if I showed an elephant and donkey and those were our political representatives to the people in Rome, they'd be like, well, we're going to conquer you easy. Like, I, you know what I mean? They would, it wouldn't make sense to them. But we know what it means. I say those terms, you know what it means. I say something like Washington, D.C., it represents a lot. I say something like sleepy or old looking, represents a lot. You guys get it. Even if you're not way up on the political scene, 
you get it. Revelation and apocalyptic literature is the same way. So there's going to be a lot of images that were like, that seems so weird. The end of the world's going to be crazy. And I think John would be like, I, I'm just talking about what the Romans would have thought. You know, like it would have made sense to them, at least mostly, when they see these images. It's like, oh, I know what he's saying. And it's not even just like I'm using an image to point to a metaphor. But it's like the political cartoons. When I said those things and you guys were like, oh, I see. It's a deeper meaning behind, right? So Revelation's the same way. It's not just like I'm using an image that you get. It's like I'm using an image kind of to poke fun or kind of to make a point or kind of to show what really is true, even if you don't think it is, but that's I'm revealing what's there. I'm revealing what's real. And you may be experiencing, you know, we're experiencing living in the American economy, but somebody who might draw a cartoon like the, you know, the old donkey sleeping at the desk is like, no, let me tell you what's going on. This is what I'm seeing beneath the surface when I reveal it. Does that make sense, this whole thing? So read Revelation that way. Let it expose the truth. It's always there. It's under there. You may not be able to see it clearly. And John is saying, hey, Jesus showed me some things that are going on beneath the surface. It's going on around us all the time. You may not see what's happening, but you guys are feeling like persecution and attacked and like something's hunting you down. Let me pull back the veil, chapter 12, and tell you that's because there's an angry dragon chasing you. That's the political cartoon of this. Or you may feel like no matter what you do or how hard you work, you can't make it economically. You can't figure out how to overcome these false narratives spread about Christians. You can't seem to convince them that you're not a threat to the economy, that you're just trying to do a good job. Why does it feel so frustrating? And John's like, let me pull back the veil. It's because there's this angry beast who's controlling all of it and doesn't want anybody to succeed, who's faithful to the gospel. That's why it feels like you're running into this angry beast who's stopping you at every turn. Because spiritually, that's exactly what's happening. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's the revelation, the apocalyptic feel. Yes, Samantha. Okay, so people will talk about how, like, they're like, well, that's just a spiritual realm. Like, that's what it looks like there. Mm -hmm. Are you going to explain a little bit more about, like, how that imagery plays into the spiritual realm, but mm -hmm. rather that's still like an imagery mm -hmm. between like the physical world? Yeah, so we'll look at, as when we go through the text, we'll see like, okay, here's this okay. image of what it would have meant. So how do we experience that on this side? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I don't think when chapter 12 says there's an angry dragon searching the world to try to find the offspring of the baby who survived. Yeah, I don't believe it's like, look out for a dragon someday once the rapture happens. Mm -hmm. I think that's saying it feels like when you're being hunted down by people who hate Christians, that you have no chance because it's just this vicious, awful monster that you can't even predict or control. Doesn't it feel that way? Yeah. Spiritually, it's like a dragon's chasing you. Oh, that makes sense why it feels so awful. I think that's a lot of how Revelation will play out. So with that, why do you think John did that? I think, I think for the same reason somebody would do a political cartoon. That it's like, I can say this true thing, but you're going to remember it different if I do it this way. Okay. Or I can, or I can um, apply it at a deeper level or with lots of layers of meaning if I do it this way. Mm -hmm. um, some of that is, I think, um, probably a little bit of like when Jesus talks about why he spoke in parables. Yeah. That it's like, I'm going to speak this way. You could understand it, but not all of you will. But you'll get it, some of it, some of the time. 
and it'll keep meaning more to you the more you reflect on it. Mm-hmm. I think there's some of that to it. Too. Is that sort of like I guess like I don't know why this word is popping in my head, but I think it's right. Propaganda. Yes. It's very sounds similar-ish yep. to that. Yep. You can advance a pretty significant narrative with a pretty small image, yep. couldn't you? Like those two examples I just gave you. If if you give those to to people, especially people who already kind of think that way, you're adv- you're making a, a huge long documents long mm-hmm. statement in a picture and you can advance a narrative a lot that way so i think john is recognizing rome had a to use your word i think is, is absolutely the right word rome had like every government ever has had including Democracy. all of them ha- are good at propaganda another way to say it that sounds less offensive is marketing yeah. so you know it can be the same there's subtle differences but that's what we do that's what governments do because they have a narrative they're trying to advance. They have messages they're trying to get across. So that's what you do. Rome was great at it. Um, and so I think this is partially God through John saying, I'm good at this too. Mm-hmm. Let me give my people who need hope, who need perseverance, who need conviction. We've got a narrative. Mm-hmm. You want to know what you should hold on to? Yeah, there's a dragon chasing you. But there's a lion who can kill all. Yeah. Like, yeah, there's a dragon chasing you. But you know who, who wins all of history? There was a lamb who looked like it was killed that's still alive. We can play propaganda too. So I think that's some of what God's doing. Yeah. Yes, he's given the church ammunition to keep going in the face of what they were dealing with. Yeah. I was listening, but I didn't write anything down for the apocalypse. I haven't said them yet. Good. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> so first, John is writing to reveal something. If an apocalypse is a revealing, you know, it's not, it's not like... Because again, because of what I think what we've looked at Revelation to be, we see Revelation, it's like it's revealing the future. Like, no, he's saying, I'm going to reveal to you what's always been there, what's under the surface. I'm just going to pull back the veil so you see the truth. That's what he's doing. So he's writing to reveal something. So if you're reading Revelation and everything becomes more confusing, then you probably missed some of John's intent. Because John intended to write a revelation, not a hiding book or a mystery book. It's a revelation. Does that make sense? Second, apocalyptic literature, we said this is like a political cartoon. It's like a political cartoon. So that's what um, Apocalypse does. So all three of those genres kind of overlap into Revelation at the center. And Revelation does a little bit of all of those functions. And if you read it, you can kind of feel him shifting in and out. You know, he'll like address the churches, specifically in chapters 2 through 3, pretty head on. I'm talking to the churches. But then within those things, there's prophetic messages. And there's little apocalyptic pictures. So... He's kind of bleeding all of them, but if you just read it through and have all those three in mind, you can usually see the scenes where they meet up. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to read chapter one and just kind of comment through it. Um, and I think this will set the stage for the rest of the book, and um, I think it'll give you a feel for what Revelation is like and what Revelation is trying to do. Um, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful chapter. <clears throat> so Revelation 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, so again, the revealing, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So you read that, and you're like, soon, it's coming. And John would be like, yeah, soon, like like now, like it's happening. You know, it's not like, I I think when John wrote this, he wasn't thinking, you know what, I bet 2,000 years from now, it's going to be right around the corner. I think John wrote this and said, this is taking place soon. Jesus is coming to fix this soon. You're facing persecution like this soon. Like they could knock on your door today. 
this is what's going to happen soon. Does that make sense? Um, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Bring all of our New Testament stuff to bear on that too. Not like, watch out, it's coming. But like, history has been fulfilled. Anytime now Jesus is going to fix this. Just like all the New Testament authors have said, trust him. It's closer than you think. Let him work. He's kept every promise he's ever made. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Haven't we seen that firstborn from the dead imagery kind of before, right? That Jesus Christ, the first fruits to arrive from the grave. So John's using that same image. He rose from the dead. He's the firstborn. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Where do we know that language verse 6 from? He's made us to be a kingdom and priests. Where? Hebrews. Hebrews talks about that kind of idea. Yeah. Where else? There's two. This is almost a quote from two other places in Scripture. From Peter. Yeah. In First Peter. And it's in Exodus. So God calls him out of Exodus and says, you're my kingdom and priests. Peter says, I know you're scattered all over the world and it's brutal, but God called you to be a kingdom and priests. Here in Revelation, he says, he's made us to be a kingdom and priests. So even all these years later, they're holding on to the same calling. To be glory and power forever and ever, amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Doesn't that sound like Philippians 2 a little bit? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. Even the ones who killed him at some point are going to have to bow down and realize it. So even those who pierced him uh, and all peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Now that may seem weird to us and I think that's where like people who are in a, a majority Christian culture can see someone like this and be like, everybody's going to mourn because of him. It's going to be awful. Like, but if if we're reading like marginalized people who are suffering for it and feel like they're the only ones it's like yeah that's right they're going to mourn when he comes because they killed him and they're killing us and they're unfair and they're unkind and they're lying and they're murderers yes they're going to mourn when he comes and that's a totally different kind of feel you know I read that and I'm like everybody mourning that's sad and they read it and I'm like but don't they deserve it at some point if he is a just God then he's going to save his kingdom who have been priests for him and faithful in all of this. And he's going to make it right. Yes, they're going to mourn. And that doesn't, I don't think that comes from a heart of like, forget them and I hope they all go to hell. That comes from a heart of, what would it be like to right now be a Christian in, I look there because I put a picture up, a Christian in Iran. Put in prison and left out in the cold with no clothes till you get frostbite. How would you feel? Now, God calls us to forgive our enemies, to love, but someday he's coming. And those people who have been rebellious and violent and adamant and had opportunities and never turned and never turned and never turned, it'll be devastating for them. But don't you long for God to be just too? So even those who pierced him will mourn. So shall it be. Amen. Uh, In Greek, that phrase, so shall it be, is just the word yes. It's nigh. 
in Greek. So it just says, like, he says all this. He's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. Yes, amen. That's how it reads. Yes. Um, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now let me read one more passage for you. We've read this before not too long ago, but you've got to have it in your mind for the next part to really come alive. This is in Daniel chapter 7. So again, John would have known all these things. God would have known all these things. And when God is revealing these things to John, I think God is speaking the same language he's always spoken. So um, this is in Daniel chapter 7. Um, and it says... Um, Daniel said this vision of, you know, like beasts and governments that are going to raise up and God's calling him to persevere in the light of persecution in Babylon also in Persia. Um, in verse 9 it says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Um, then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. That shows up straight in Revelation 13 and then 20. We'll read later in 19. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, John would have known that story. Um, Jewish Christians would have known that story. It was a well-known passage even then. So I think John probably when he's seeing this vision is blown away because it's like I've read this before but now my eyes see it it's almost like Job saying to God like at the end of Job like I've heard of you before but now my eyes have seen you and it changes him I think that's John I read this before wow so um back up at verse 7 look he's coming with the clouds you remember that from Daniel 7 this is in Revelation 1 7 I'm reading he's coming with the clouds here in Daniel 7, in my vision the night I looked there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. So John sees somebody coming with the clouds and like, wait, 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 wait. I know this. And then he says, I'm the Alpha Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That word Almighty um, is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Sabaoth, if you know those names. So the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of angel armies, um, the all-powerful, the Almighty. Uh, then verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So when he says on the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, um, I think that means basically he's having a really great worship time. You know, it's like this is the day we worship and he's there alone because he's been exiled. And he's like, I was just like with him. It was so good. You know what those times are like. You know, it's like it was he was there. So on the Lord's day I was in the spirit. I heard this voice say, this loud voice say, write down what you hear and send it to these churches. And then look at this. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. 
but you don't see voices, do you? You hear them. So he heard a voice, and I, this is me reading into these details a little bit, but I just have to think that John, who spent those years with Jesus, who's missed him for six decades now, is on this island alone because he hasn't stopped preaching and hasn't given up. And he's in the Spirit in this amazing worshipful prayer time, talking to God, missing him, longing for him to fix all of this stuff, probably praying for his church back home that he misses because he got sent away, probably thinking about his friend that he misses because he spent all those years with him. And then he's in this prayer and hears a voice. And then when it says he turned to see the voice, I wonder if he hears and is like, I know that voice. I've heard it before. And so he turns around thinking, is he there? Like, could I see the voice? I haven't seen him in 60 years. But he turns around to see the voice that was speaking. And then look at this. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Because I saw someone like a son of man coming on the clouds. Remember from Daniel 7? So he's like, wait, I know that voice. I turn around and I see that character. But it was that voice. So all the things he's longed for about his friend who was beaten and killed and unfairly treated, he is now glorified. Coming on the clouds with heaven, doing everything he said he would do. And John gets to see that. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Here's where it gets really cool too. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. So remember back in Daniel 7, there's two characters we talked about, the Ancient of Days, and then the person who looked like a human, one like a son of man coming. So we've got God and Jesus figures there. Does that make sense? The Ancient of Days was described as hair white like wool, clothes white like wool. And then the Son of Man came. They're separate. But here it's like I turned around and saw one like a Son of Man who had come on the clouds from heaven. And he's dressed in white like wool. And his eyes are like fire. Wait, it's the same. Isn't that cool? So John sees it and it's like, that's my friend. But that's not like he was. It's different. Like he's been, he's been resurrected. He's been transformed. He's been glorified. And then in verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Remember when I told you that Domitian's son had died and they put him on coins? Mm -hmm. The picture of him on a coin, you can look it up and see it. The picture of him on a coin is as a little baby, the son of the God, the son of the king, holding seven stars in his hand. So when he says this here, I don't, this is apocalyptic. Like, hey, do you want to know who's really in charge? Do you think it's the guy who's in power persecuting you? Do you think it's the guy in the power legislating all your morality and controlling it all because he declared himself in charge? Do you think it's his son that he declared was the son of God, even though neither of them are gods, but now he's on the money that you have to spend trying to claim power over like all of heaven, holding the stars in his hand? Do you know who really holds the stars in his hand? The one whose eyes are like fire, dressed in white, coming on the clouds with heaven. I heard his voice. Do you want to hear what he has to say? I think that's kind of what John's doing to these people. And so they're, they're probably reading this being like, wait, I've seen that image, but this one's real, you know? So his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus always does? Like even at Christmas, right? The angels come, don't be afraid. 
I bring you good tidings of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you, which is Christ the Lord. And I've told you this before. Those are the same words used when they announce a new emperor. There's a new Savior in Rome. He's the chosen one, and he's our new Lord. That's what they would have said for a new emperor. But the angels say, don't be afraid. The real one's the baby over there. And John here, I think, saying, don't be afraid. Jesus saying to John, don't be afraid. I know what you're facing. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know how hard it is. And that the emperor thinks that his son holds the world in his hands. You know who holds the world in his hands? This guy. And what does he say? Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So at this time, too, there was a, a myth. Um, around this time, or a little before, called Nero Redivivus, which basically means Nero had been resurrected. So there were some people who were kind of believing or teaching or thinking or hoping or something that Nero, who was gone, was maybe back to life. And for probably some people that was really good, for some people it was really bad. But they would have known, like, maybe the king came back to life. He's the one who's alive. Jesus says, I'm the living one. I came back from the dead. And I'm standing before you talking to you. And not only did I come back, but look what I have. I've got the key. I can go in and out whenever I want. I can go in there and get whoever I want. There's no power if I've got the key. What is that gate going to do to you? I have the key. Because I went in and came back out on my own. That's such a powerful, like, taunting image, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That for Hades, who would have still, they, the Romans called it a different name, but Hades is like the god who controls the afterlife, which is something to be feared, and hopefully you can earn enough to be in or out of it, whatever. And Jesus is like, yeah, I've been there, and I got the key. So this is another one of those, like, why would he write this way? I think it's God, Jesus, John, giving some ammo to the church to be like, they think they've got this all figured out, but Jesus holds the key. So it's his. Who has the authority over it? The person with the key. Jesus says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. And then he says, write therefore what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. There is both in this book. This is what's going on now. We're going to see some glimpses of what takes place later. But it's both. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands. Remember John turns around to see the voice and he sees seven golden lampstands and Jesus standing among them. The mystery of the stars and the lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Um, So when it says the seven stars you saw in my right hand um, are the seven, uh, let's see, are the angels of the seven churches. Some people will say that that's like the pastors of those churches, like the lead people. It's like the messenger that I sent to lead that church. Um, Some people will just say like there's an angel, like almost a guardian angel over that church. Either way, I don't know. Either makes sense to me. The point he's making is these people or angels or whoever it is that's like fighting for this church, I've got them in my hand. And when he says the seven lampstands are the churches, where did John see him among the churches? You think those churches felt alone, undervalued, unseen? Probably. But when John sees the Almighty the one dressed in white, the Ancient of Days, who's also the Son, who rose from the dead and has the key over death. Where was he standing? Right in the middle of the churches. So when John gives him this image, I don't think they would have been like, but what does a lampstand mean? It says, well, the lampstands mean the churches. 
This is, this is his way in a vision of saying, I am right there with you. You feel alone, you feel unseen, you feel scared. I'm with you. You feel like death is coming soon. It might, but I have the key. You feel afraid. Don't be afraid. I'm the Almighty. The Ancient of Days. My eyes are like fire. I see everything that needs to be seen. I see those people doing that to you. Someday I'm coming on the clouds from heaven. And every eye will see me. Even those who pierced, not just Jesus' physical body, but Jesus' body. Those who pierce him are going to see him and have to deal with the one whose eyes blaze like fire. Don't be afraid. I'm right there with you. It's not going to be forever. Hold on. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So that's what Revelation is like. And when you see it that way, and when you look at it like an epistle, and like a prophecy, and like an apocalypse combined, and you do some historical work to figure out what does that image mean to the people who would have heard it, when you do some of that historical work to figure out what were they feeling, what political tensions were going on, so that when John uses this image, he's taking a stab at the Romans. When you see that stuff, it's like, oh, this isn't crazy. This isn't like a hidden code to crack. This isn't a warning that we need to be afraid of. This is hope for a beaten down church. Mm-hmm. That's what this is. More than It does a lot of things. This is hope for a beaten down church. And Jesus' first message is, don't be afraid. I'm with you. And when I do come, they're going to have to deal with me. In the meantime, let's talk about how you remain in me. So that you can remain in my love and my Father can remain in you. Mm-hmm. Remember, John, when I had you write that before? Same message. Does that make sense? So next week we'll do more. Uh, But that's chapter one. Um, So let's pray for today and be done. God, we're so grateful for your word. And we're so grateful for your presence with us. We're grateful that you hold us in your hand. We're grateful that you're aware of what's going on here. You care more about it than we do. And we're grateful that when all those thrones are kind of set in place, everything stops and everything hinges on the Ancient of Days taking his seat. So no matter who else thinks they have power or authority or dominion or whatever, nothing happens uh, outside of your sight. Nothing happens that's outside of your ability um, to control. Nothing happens outside of your ability to fix. Nothing happens outside of your love for your people. Uh, Lots of things happen, but we just want to receive your message today, not to be afraid, to hold on to hope to lean on your presence, to listen for your voice. God, I pray that we would be people who know your voice so well uh, that when we are uh, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, we can hear it and know it and know that it's you. And I pray that we know your voice so well that someday um, when we're home, in eternity really begins and we're living in the new heavens and the new earth and we hear your voice. It's not the first time we've heard it. And when we hear your voice say, well done, we know the voice. And we can turn and finally see it. And so we rest in that today. We believe in that today. And we trust you today to take care of us. And we don't want to be afraid. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Amen.